Almighty Father, it is an audacious thing that we say to call you Father, to speak of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. These are audacious things to say, and yet they they fuel our joy. They change our lives. They transform us. And so we ask that you would grant these not merely to be slogans, not merely to be words on a page, but will you be among us by your Spirit? And will you give us sight that we cannot generate ourselves? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. Um, one of the, I already said this, one of the great privileges of being a Christian is hearing stories of people whose lives have been changed uh, through Jesus Christ. And it, it was wonderful to hear a little bit of Vinita's story, wasn't it? Um, and one of the things that's wonderful about these stories is that every single one of them is unique. But on the other hand, they're not all that rare. One of the things uh, that is striking is that for the past 2,000 years, uh, ever since Jesus rose from the dead, people have been telling stories of profound transformation. And you can read about these stories in uh, widely divergent cultures. You can read about these stories at, from widely divergent moments in history, widely diverged, divergent uh, divergent backgrounds of people, and yet, nevertheless, you can hear these stories, which are all of them unique, and yet there's a commonality between them. You can go to Malawi, and you can hear stories of Malawians, and they recognize your story, and you recognize their story. There's something common. And the common thing that you hear again and again is the name Jesus Christ. People will say, my life has been transformed by Jesus. And then if you challenge him and you say, well, tell me what you mean by that. Come on, give me a little bit more. What they'll say, like I said, all of them are unique, and yet very often they follow a kind of pattern. It'll go something like this. They'll say something like, I was blind, but now I see. Not that I was physically blind, they'll say, but I was spiritually blind, and then Jesus made me see. Not physically, but spiritually. Now, that kind of story, like I said, all of them are unique, but that kind of story is repeated time and again for the past 2,000 years. People have been saying that Jesus has given them spiritual sight. Now, Jim, why are you talking about this on Easter Sunday morning? Here's why. Because the moment in the story and in the Bible, you can see this in all of the accounts, the moment Jesus rises from the dead, this is the thing that Jesus is busy with. He's busy with giving people spiritual sight. It's the primary miracle that he performs after his resurrection. And you could argue that it's the most important miracle that Jesus performs after his resurrection. And the reason I say that is that it is the miracle, giving spiritual sight is the miracle that makes somebody a Christian. But it is also the miracle that in an ongoing way causes the Christian to grow over time. And therefore, it's relevant for every single one of us here. Let me put all of this differently. Easter will be meaningless to you until Jesus gives you spiritual sight. 
Or put differently again, religion will be joyless and powerless until Jesus gives you spiritual sight. So that's what we get to talk about this morning. We're going to look at the second reading, the big long uh, narrative, and I'm going to ask two questions. First of all, what is spiritual blindness? And then secondly, how does Jesus give spiritual sight? Take a look at the reading. Uh, It starts on page 8 and 9. Now, just to set the scene, this is the day that Jesus rose from the dead. This is hours after Jesus' resurrection. And we pick up the story with two guys on the road. And uh, my guess is that it's not very difficult for most of us to identify with these two people. Um, don't, don't Don't raise your hand, but... Or you can if you want. How many of us have ever felt disappointed with God? Yeah. Yeah. All right. You know, it's church. You can be honest, you know? Um, Even in church, you can be honest. But um, yeah, I mean, a lot of us can identify with that, right? And now these two people have just suffered a hellish trauma. We don't know much about them. We know one's called Cleopas. Uh, That name pops up every now and then. We don't know who the other person is. Uh, But we do know that they were followers of Jesus. Um, And we know that they were running, fleeing from Jerusalem. And they probably had really good reason to flee from Jerusalem. Uh, The reason I say that is that in verse 21, we find out that they had, they say they, they had hoped that Jesus was the one to redeem Israel. That is, they hoped that Jesus was the Messiah. So at some point before this, weeks, months, years before this, uh, these two people had, had heard Jesus, heard of Jesus, uh, began to follow Jesus. They had put their hope in Jesus. They had entrusted themselves to Jesus. They had cashed all their chips in, betting that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. And so part of what that meant is that their expectations for Jesus were just at fever pitch. So they expected Jesus, for instance, to uh, fulfill all of Israel's expectations of the Messiah. Um, They expected Jesus as the Messiah to fulfill all of God's promises from the Hebrew scriptures. They expected all that to come true, and they were going to watch. So, for instance, they expected uh, that the Messiah would rescue Israel from their enemies. In their minds, that's Rome. But not only that, they also expected that Jesus would renew Israel, that Jesus would reach into the corruption of their nation, the corruption of their leaders, the corruption fundamentally in their hearts, and would transform them from the inside out, and that it would be a new day. Their hopes and their expectations for Jesus were at fever pitch. And then Jesus was betrayed. And then he was arrested. And then he was tried. And then he was condemned. And then he was put upon a cross. And then he died. And then he was put in a tomb. And in those 12 or 14 hellish hours, their world died. They didn't have anybody that they could trust. They couldn't trust the Romans. They knew that. But they couldn't trust their own nation. Their leaders were corrupt. They had arranged Jesus' death. They couldn't even trust the twelve. Judas had betrayed Jesus, and Peter had denied him. It was an inside job. Who do you trust? Their world died. 
there is an exquisite type of pain. Some of you have experienced this. There is an exquisite kind of pain. When you put all your trust in one thing, all your hope in your life in one thing, this is the thing that makes life worth living. This is the thing, without it, I cannot live. And then all of a sudden, it is destroyed. There is an exquisite kind of pain that comes from that experience. Because when that happens, it leaves you in total despair. And where was God for them in this moment? Where were all of his promises? What good is the Bible for them on that day? And so they ran out of Jerusalem. Of course they ran out of Jerusalem. And they left it in fear and despair, and they were certain that God had defaulted upon his promises. Some of us can identify. But pause there for a second, okay? Because this is when we begin to see how spiritual blindness works. Because if you look back at the story, do you notice how these two people ignore and discount part of the story? And in particular, interestingly, they ignore the testimony of the women. Do you notice that? Look at it. Verse 22. So they're talking to Jesus. They don't know it's Jesus yet. And they're talking to him about how their hopes have been dashed and everything's terrible. And then they say this, verse 22. Moreover, some of our women in our company amazed us because they were at the tomb early this morning. And when they didn't find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels (laughs) who said that he was alive. Now, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women said, but they didn't see him. Do you see what's going on there? These guys already this day had heard of Jesus' resurrection. However, they refused to believe it. And in particular, they refused to accept the testimony of the women whom Jesus had commissioned to bring the news. And it's worse than that. Because even before Jesus went to Jerusalem, so we're talking weeks in advance, Jesus had gathered his disciples together and had told them several times that he would be arrested and that he would be condemned, that he would die, and then three days later he would rise again. Jesus had laid the plan out for them multiple times, and then they went to Jerusalem. And then it ends up they followed exactly the course that Jesus said it would, and then this group of women came to the rest of the disciples and said, hey, check it out, it happened as he said. And yet in spite of all of that, their hearts defaulted to fear and to despair and to conclude that God had failed. That's spiritual blindness. That's how it works. And look how Jesus describes it. Verse 25, he diagnoses them. And Jesus said to them, Oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory? Read. Didn't I talk to you about this? Now, Jesus sounds a little bit harsh here, but he's not being harsh. He's, being a di- he's diagnosing the problem. And the problem, notice, is that they are slow of heart. The problem is in their hearts. So it's not just that they need more information. They've got a lot of information already. But nevertheless, they can't or they won't see what is standing right in front of them. 
They've heard the prophets, they've heard Jesus, they've heard the women, but nevertheless, they cannot see because their hearts default to doubt. And that's how spiritual blindness works. And that describes all of humanity. It goes in the Bible right back to the beginning of the Bible. You remember Adam and Eve. Uh, Adam and Eve, uh, God creates the world. Adam and e- God gives Adam and Eve this wonderful garden. Says, you can eat anything, except for one tree. But you can eat anything. And then, you remember the story, the snake comes along and says, you know, um, that guy, God, he and I, we've got a past. Um, you can't trust him. Take my word for it. And Adam and Eve, immediately, that's all it takes. They kind of look at him and go, yeah, good point. Um, I think the evidence is conclusive that God cannot be trusted. And so they, they trust a snake. There's something within the human heart that like a magnet attracts iron. Our hearts are attracted to doubt, even when we are surrounded by good reason to trust in God. And I experience this in my life. Do you? I mean, I, why is it that I can study year? I can spend years studying the Bible, and the more I study the Bible, and I believe this, this is true, this is true to my experience, the more I study the Bible, the more I see the beauty of Jesus Christ and how it all fits together in a remarkable way. And I can be surrounded by people whose lives are being transformed, contemporary evidence of the ongoing work of Jesus' resurrection, and yet, nevertheless, one little thing can just make my heart shudder with a bit of doubt. Why? It's because my heart is slow to believe and I have a congenital heart problem. I'm prone to spiritual blindness. But that's just me. Um, Now, that's spiritual blindness. Let's talk about uh, how Jesus gives spiritual sight. And and I want to point out three things that Jesus does in giving us spiritual sight. He doesn't always use this order. Uh, but these three elements are always involved. First of all, Jesus himself personally pursues the spiritually blind. I love this story for all sorts of reasons, but one of the reasons I love this story is that it's just a bit odd, right? So Jesus, he's fresh out of the tomb, and he goes charging down the road in pursuit of these two people who are running and are completely in despair, And Jesus chases them down, so to speak, and then he starts walking with them, but they don't recognize that it's him. And he plays along for a while. He's like, hey, guys, hi, what, did he introduce himself? I don't know. Um, What you talking about? They're like, well, we're talking about, you know, everything that happened in Jerusalem the last few days. And Jesus goes, something happened in in Jerusalem? (laughs) Like, I know Passover, but something else? And they look at him like, oh, clearly you don't listen to NPR. And and then they, they they start saying, oh, this guy, you know. Um, now, the thing is, it's, it's not just funny. It's all, good comedy always has an edge. There's an edge. The edge here is that uh, blind people don't generally heal themselves. Somebody else has to work. And spiritually blind people never heal themselves. The point of the story is that only Jesus can overcome our spiritual blindness and give us sight. And that's one of the reasons why Easter is so important. Easter is not about some sort of technique to, you know, a a sleight of hand to overcome your doubt. That's not what it's about. Um, Jesus, according to the scripture, Jesus personally has to engage with you. He has to pursue you. And that's part of the reason why the literal resurrection of Jesus is so important. Because if only Jesus can uh, heal us from our spiritual blindness, then it means that Jesus himself 
really has to rise from the dead, really has to be alive even now, really has to pursue us in our lives, not just metaphor. And that brings us to today and to Easter and to you and me. Because let me say something very bold. It's going to put some people off. I, I don't mean it that, this way, but, you know, it's my job, so there you go. The wonderful news of today is that Jesus is alive. And he's alive even if right now we look at that and we just say, oh, that just sounds crazy. My doubt doesn't make Jesus unreal. Any more than the people in the stories doubt made Jesus unreal. And that's good news. Why? Why is that good news? It just kind of sounds like you're being weird. It's good news because it means that Jesus can really meet you, really pursue you in the midst of our doubts, in the midst of our spiritual blindness. It's, you don't, just like he pursued these people on the road to Emmaus, he pursues you and me today. He was pursuing Venita. And that's one story amongst millions. Jesus pursues the spiritually blind. And that brings us to the second thing that Jesus does. Uh, Jesus, in order to give us spiritual sight, he shows us himself in his word in the scriptures, in the Bible. Look at verse 27. They're walking on the road, and Jesus turns it into a Bible study. Verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he's looking exclusively at the Hebrew scriptures, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Now, I find this remarkable. Because in this situation, Jesus wanted them to see him in the Bible before they saw him physically. And that's curious, because there's a lot of people, I hear this all the time, I've thought this a lot, um, if only I could see him. You know, Thomas got to see him. If only I got to see him. That'd help. But this story takes that and just turns it on its head. Because Jesus wanted these two people to see, to trust the scriptures more than they even trusted their own physical eyes. He allowed them to see him physically for a moment, but first he wanted, to, he wanted them to see him scripturally. And that's the pattern for us. Uh, all Christians look forward to the day when we will see Jesus physically. I know that sounds audacious, but you know, there we go, it's Easter. But nevertheless, all Christians see Jesus first scripturally. And let me say something about that, because I'm very aware that for some of us, the Bible is the epicenter of our doubt, right? And, and if that's true for you, um, first of all, I want you to know we're delighted. Please bring those questions. Those questions are important, crucial. And if I may, can I point out just, a, just a, one piece of advice? If you're struggling with whether or not you can trust the Bible, and just, it just seems a bit odd and crazy, what I recommend you do is that um, you take the particular issues that either cause you offense or that you don't understand or that you're not sure that you can trust. Take those, name them, because they're very important, and you're going to have to pick them up later. But name them, and just for, um, a, just for a season, set them over here. Don't ignore them. Name them, but set them over here, whatever they might be. They could be all kinds of things. And then... Spend a lot of time looking at Jesus. And when I say that, I mean reading Jesus yourself, the, 
the primary text, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Read Jesus, and as you read Jesus, ask yourself the question, is Jesus somebody that I can trust? And if you find that Jesus is somebody that you can trust, then take all those questions and pummel Jesus with your questions. Ask how does Jesus, his, his life, his teaching, his death, his resurrection, the, the teaching of his first followers, how does Jesus address, clarify, reframe, answer the questions that I have? And the reason I encourage you to, say, to do that is because Jesus himself says that he's the one that makes sense of the rest of the Bible. He's like the missing puzzle piece that when you stick it into the puzzle, all of a sudden, oh my goodness, like you can see the image. But, but, but you couldn't see the image without that piece. And so we're trying to to understand how this forms an image, but we're looking at the pieces that don't... We're missing the image. We're missing the piece that makes it all clear. All right. Seem to be the advice. First thing, Jesus pursues the spiritually blind. Secondly, he shows himself in the Bible. And then thirdly, and this is the most mysterious one, he makes himself known in the breaking of the bread. I'm pretty sure this one means a lot of things. But it means at least this. We see Jesus decisively when we see the magnitude of his grace for us. Let me tell you why I put it that way. Look at verse 30. So they arrive at Emmaus. Jesus acts like he's going on. He's still kind of playing with them. Um, but then he goes, oh, okay. And he stays at their house. But here's the funny thing. They go and they sit down for dinner, and he doesn't take the, the place of a guest. He takes the place of a host. Odd. And then this is what happens. Verse 30. When Jesus was at table with him, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it. These are all very evocative in the rest of the scriptures. And then, crucially, he gave it. Focus on gave it. And their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and, they, and he vanished from their sight. And then they said to one another, did not our hearts, mark that too, burn within us while, we, while he talked with us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Now, closely, look, when were their eyes open? It's when Jesus was giving the bread. Why is that important? Well, all through the Bible, food and feasting is a sign of God's grace. What does that mean? God's giving of gifts that we do not deserve but fill us with joy. So, for instance, in the garden, God is the host, not the guest. He's the host. Eat from any tree. Not one, but eat from any tree. God was the host, humanity was the guest, and as they feasted together, God giving the food, it was a sign that they were united in joy and fellowship. Then it goes wrong, but later on, um, you remember the Passover. Uh, Israel is commanded to sit down and eat, and while they were eating, God was delivering them from their enemies, the Egyptians. Then a little bit later, Israel is in the desert, and there's no food. And so God gives them manna. God's the host. They're the guests. God is giving them daily, day by day, what they need. And then if you skip forward to Jesus, through Jesus' ministry, Jesus reenacts all of those in reverse order. So earlier in Jesus' ministry, he feeds the 5,000 and the 4,000 in the desert. 
just like God fed Israel with manna. A little bit later, instead of the Passover or at a Passover, Jesus, we're going to celebrate it later, takes bread and gives them the Holy Communion, the Eucharist. And now here, the risen Jesus takes bread and he breaks it, showing that the culmination of grace is his broken body for them, and then he gives it to them, just like God always does, as if to say, did you think that the promises of God were dawn default? No. All God's promises are fulfilled. God has kept every single one of them. All of God's grace is now yours. Take, eat, receive my grace. Don't just agree with the truth in your mind and in your intellect. Do that. Ask all the hard questions, but there must come a time when you you entrust yourself to me from the heart. And Jesus says, this is grace. This is victory for you. And it was the moment that they received Jesus' grace for themselves. That was the moment when they began to see for the first time. And do you remember how um, spiritual blindness is a heart condition? Our hearts just want to doubt. Look at verse 32. As they eat the bread and see Jesus, all of a sudden their hearts burn within them. Their hearts were being made new. God was infusing their hearts with a supernatural trust or changing the image. He was opening their eyes and healing their spiritual blindness. And then comes the joy. Grace culminates in joy. Grace received feels like joy. And so they get up and they were running in despair, but now they run in joy. And they run not from Jerusalem, they run back to Jerusalem. Just like the women who previously they disbelieved, they run back. Why? To tell the story and to enter into the community of people who have said, Jesus Christ has changed my life. And so they barge in the door. Was it locked? I don't know. They barge through the door into the rest of the disciples and they say, Alleluia, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Where are you at with this? Better question. How well can you see Jesus today? He's not far away. He's here. And he is our host today. And he will feed us with himself. And if you find that you're like, nah, I don't, ah, that's the technical term. <laughs> don't try to heal your own spiritual blindness. There is a risen Lord who loves to restore and to heal. Let him allure you, persuade you, ask him. He's good at making himself clear. Amen? Amen.